our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 through 44. We read there, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. It's important for us to know that no prophecy of the Scripture came about by the prophet's own ideas. It never had its origin in the will of man, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God speak to our hearts this day through his words. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to each and every one of us that are here today. Lord, uh, for us who have put our faith in you, who have trusted the work of Jesus, which he accomplished on that cross so that our sins could be paid for, we know our sins are forgiven, and we know that one day we'll be with you forever and ever, living in complete joy and abundance. Even those who don't know you, Lord, have enjoyed of your goodness because every good and perfect gift we've ever had has come from you. So right now, uh, Lord, we do stop and thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy offered to us in your Son. And Lord, we thank you for this wonderful treasure of your word. And we ask that you would take this word today, your word, and that you would speak it to our hearts, that you would open our minds and give us understanding, but that we would embrace what you say to us, that we would endeavor to put it into practice. And so may we honor you. And Father, again, I ask that you would allow me uh, to disappear behind the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ. That you and you alone would be uh, exalted in our midst this day. And it's in Jesus' most wonderful name that we pray. Amen. 
if you happen to uh, be standing on the bridge that is the control station of the super tanker that was anchored in the Delaware Bay when the radio officer brought up a message saying that a dock had just opened up at the refinery and the product was needed as soon as possible, you might wonder why all the pilot did was to acknowledge that communication and he did nothing more. You might wonder why no effort was made to raise the anchor and get underway, especially as you notice smaller vessels uh, heading up the river. And as you stand there, you reason that uh, there's now an open place at the dock and they're waiting for the product, so, so they ought to get on the way. And if it were up to you, you'd give the order and you'd start out and you sit there wondering why they simply sit there and do nothing. And you would wonder that, of course, unless you were part of a conversation which occurred earlier in the mess hall when the quartermaster was explaining the rocks to the new ordinary seamen. See, the Delaware River is only about 40 feet deep, and uh, that's about the draft of a super tanker that almost rides on the bottom, and indeed may even ride on the bottom uh, so much. And so because of that, they have to wait for high tide, and especially in order to cross the rock. So although that dock is open and the product is needed, nothing can be done until the water level rises. And if you had heard that earlier conversation, you would have a better understanding of what was happening or, or what was not happening up there on the bridge when that message arrived. And an awful lot of life is like that. We walk into a room in the middle of a conversation, and we don't understand what's being talked about. And so it's something we ought to be a part of. We ask questions, and we're brought up to speed. And sometimes conversations uh, take place uh, among people over days and weeks and even years. And as those conversations progress, uh, things are said which are based on or understood because of or modified by things which have occurred earlier in the exchange, which if you heard or heard someone saying and you just joined in that conversation would seem to be saying something awfully surprising. And such a person could walk away misunderstanding what was really meant in that conversation. There are things like that in the Bible, too. Now, you may read a passage that seems to be saying something, something surprising, but it really isn't understood until it's placed in the larger context <coughs> uh, of what the Bible uh, teaches. So the passage that we're going to look at today is like that. And when you read this passage, it's almost like walking into the middle of a conversation. It seems to be making this really astounding promise, but <clears throat> to really understand it, you have to bring with you the larger teachings of the Scripture. The passage that we're talking about today is talking about healing, and it's talking about healing in response to prayer, and that passage is found in James chapter 5. So I want to ask you to join me there once again in the book of James, the fifth chapter, where we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. 
I have to tell you, before we get started, it's a really complex passage of Scripture. A lot of thought and ideas and truth is packed into these few verses, and it's going to require some explanation, which, of course, is not always easy to do, not always easy to listen to. But I think if you stick with me and you, you hang in there, it'll be worth it all as you'll come away with a better understanding of this passage. Now, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> we looked at the proper response that Christians ought to have to three different general situations, one of which is when they were facing illness. And we didn't spend a lot of time on that because we were going to come back to it, which is actually what we're doing today. And we read verse 14 uh, that time, and we made a few observations. And what I want to do is begin simply by reading it again and recalling some of what we said and add a little bit new, new information if we could. So, so we read in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Now, that's a general situation that any Christian might find themselves in. And uh, we read on there, he says, is anyone of you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's the proper response. And, and, of course, the kind of sickness we're talking about here is not simply the sniffles. It's, it's a more serious kind of illness. It's a, it's a chronic condition or a life-threatening disease or a life-altering sickness that James is talking about here. And when you're faced with things like that, you're instructed, I'm instructed, believers are instructed to call the elders, and the elders are going to come, and they're going to pray for the one who's ill. And we're going to do that, and the elders do that by laying our hands on that person. And that's what it means when it says there they will pray over him. That's what's indicated by that phrase. And so the elders will anoint that person with oil in the name of the Lord. They'll come, they'll pray over him, lay hands on him, and they'll anoint that person in the name of the Lord. And although we can't see it in the English translation, the Greek really indicates that that anointing either happens as you're praying or it happens at the very beginning of that prayer, which really makes the most sense. So if I can just stop for a minute and describe uh, what's happening here. There's a person who's a Christian, and that person is sick, and it's a serious illness. And so he or she calls the elders who come into that home, and in our church something else happens right here. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to come back to it. But they come into the home, and then the elders, they lay their hands on that person, and then someone takes oil, it's usually the pastor, and they put it on that person's forehead. And when I do it, I make a little cross with it. And as I do it, I say, I'm anointing you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we pray. And we pray for God's peace, and we pray for God's guidance. <clears throat> we pray for the doctors, we pray for the family. And we pray especially for the healing of that person in need of miraculous healing. Now, that's the proper response in those situations, which I really believe is an act of obedience on our part. This is what the Scripture says. 
And so we do it. We are obeying the Scripture, and I think it is also an act of faith. As we obey the Scripture, we are acting in faith. Now, you may know this, but many churches never uh, practice this particular passage right here. And there's kind of a complication, complicated history why it kind of fell out in the church. But, but, uh, but it did kind of fall out of practice. But the reason most churches today don't practice it is that they have seen other churches and other people who have misunderstood this teaching, and we're going to talk about that misunderstanding a little bit, and, um, and, and they have misunderstood it, and they have abused it. And, uh, and, um, and so a lot of people don't practice it, but we do here. Now, I have a couple more things to say about this portion of the passage before we move on. And the first is this. It says we're to call the elders of a church. Now, that doesn't mean that all of the elders have to come. I mean, sometimes an elder may not be able to come for one reason or another. They may be traveling or have some other plans. And it's really not the number of elders that's, uh, present that's important, but it's the unity that's shown. It's, it's the commitment. It's the show of support. It's the compassion and the understanding. And for those reasons... In this church, if you call the elders to pray for you in this uh, situation, all of us, if we can, come and pray for you. And secondly, we're anointing this person in the name of the Lord. And, and the significance of that, that we're going to see is further than what I'm going to mention here, but it really means that it's a religious act. You see, this isn't, as some people claim, uh, uh, advice to use medicine in conjunction with hair. Now, I believe you should. I mean, I believe you should pray, and if you have medicine to take or surgeries to go, you need to undergo it. Uh, and But I think that this is not advice to do that. And, and God heals miraculously, but he also heals using doctors and medicine and surgery and all of those of things, and so uh, the, some churches recall that the uh, Good Samaritan poured oil and wine on the wounds of the person who was beat by the robbers, and they say, "See, it's just medicine." Well, this really is not medicine; it's a religious act. And on the other side, the other extreme is that some churches see this as a sacrament. Uh, it's uh, uh, the last rites or extreme unction, and in their view, it in some manner imparts grace. But we don't think that. We don't believe that. We see this anointing with oil, like all other anointings in the Bible, as symbolic. And it's symbolic of that person being set aside for God's special purpose. And in this case, He's set aside for God's special care while they're ill. And now that we've understood that verse, verse 14, we can move on to verse 15, which is we're going to take that verse apart a little bit at a time. So we're going to read uh, first here in verse 15. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, the Lord will raise him up. Now, James here 
seem to be making this really amazing promise, and we're going to come back to it and look more closely at it in just a little bit. But, uh, but before that, we're going to look at the next part of the verse. And so we continue reading in verse 15 in the middle of the verse. He says, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And, and so we're just to round it out, we're going to read a little bit at the beginning of verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for them. So what James is saying here is that you can get sick, and, and if you do, and it's serious, you need to call the elders of the church. And they're going to come to you, and they're going to anoint you with oil, and they're going to pray for you. And if you do this, then James is telling you that you can be sure that your sins are forgiven. And the question that arises in my mind, and probably in most people's mind, is why does he add that? Why does he make that statement well the reason is is because when people are seriously ill they wonder if it's a result of their sin now the truth of the matter is is that all sickness it really doesn't matter what it is all sickness is a result of sin at least in the sense that it's a result of the fall you see it's part of our present experience just as death is part of our experience and the thorns and sorrow and suffering and pain, it's all part of our present experience. But not all sickness that we experience is a result of our own personal sin. But some of it is. And I don't know that we always know whether or not what we're going through is a result of something that we've done. But I do know this, we tinker, we wonder about it, especially if the illness is serious. And James is really teaching us something here that's really, really wonderful. You see, we're being told by God's word that if we're sick, and, and if that sickness is a result of our own personal sin, whether we know that fact or not, we can be sure that if we've been obedient to God's word here and we've called on the elders, etc., that our sins have been forgiven. You see, we've done, spiritually speaking, we've done everything that we can in this act of praying spiritually for our healing. And we can know that our sins, whatever they are, whether it's the cause of that or not, are forgiving. Nothing more has to be done, spiritually speaking. Of course, we continue to pray. We're going to see the doctors. We're going to take our treatments. But spiritually speaking, we can know that even if our sickness has been caused by our sins, that that sin has been forgiven. Now, part of the process of this passage, if you haven't realized it, Part of the process is that you need to confess your sins. And so when the elders are called in this church, before we anoint you or we pray, I, I take a few minutes alone with that person. And I offer them an opportunity to confess their sins. See, that's what we do between the calling and the actual prayer. As I said, I wouldn't tell you what it was, but I'm telling you now. We 
come here and meet you as a person and offer to me to confess your sin. And that person doesn't have to confess anything. I mean, it's really only to confess something if it's on their heart. Otherwise, a simple acknowledgement that they're sinners like all the rest of us is fine. And they don't have to confess to me. I mean, we can get someone else in that room if they feel more comfortable talking to someone else. I have to tell you, what's said to me at a time like that dies with me. I have never repeated what I heard at that time to anyone. The only person I ever talked with about it is God himself. And you won't even know if you're there whether that person is confessing to me or not because if they don't, I spend time talking with them. And I might walk out of there and send someone else in there just to encourage them so you won't even know if they're confessing to that person. And of course, it's only the elders who are there anyway. So I want to sum up what we've said so far in this process. A person's ill, serious ill and so he or she calls the elders of the church and, and then there's a time where there's a private time for confession and then we gather around that person and we lay our hands on them and we anoint them with oil in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and we pray for them and we pray for their healing and now that we've said all of that we can look more closely at the beginning of verse 15. We're going to read that again when it says this. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And James seems to be saying something here. He seems to be making this absolutely astounding promise that that person will be healed. But we know, don't we, from our own experience, we know from experience of other people that there are people that are prayed for in that situation and they're not always healed. So, so how, how do we understand that? Well, some people believe that this passage here is talking about spiritual health. And so for them, the fact that not everyone gets well is not really a problem for them. Yeah, if the person lives good, if he gets better, uh, gets well, then that's even better. And if they die well, the healing and the raising up are going to happen in the next life. So it doesn't present any problem to them. Uh, the problem with that view is, is that although we don't see it here in the, in the English and in the Greek, there's absolutely no doubt that James is talking about physical illness and physical healing. So that explanation really doesn't help. And then there's the other group, uh, and you know them by the name it and claim it people. And that's what they say about this passage. All you have to do is know it's here. You name it, you claim it, and it's yours. For them, they believe that this is God's guarantee, that he will heal you, absolutely heal you in this lifetime. And when it doesn't happen, then... They blame it on the lack of faith of the person that's got the sickness or the lack of faith of those who prayed for him or even the unbelief of the people all around them. But if that's not true, if 
their teaching and interpretation isn't right, and again, I don't believe it is, if it's not God's will to heal that person, then just think of what that teaching is doing. That person who's sick is in anguish. And they're in anguish, and it's especially so as that disease worsens. They don't have peace. They question their faith. They question the faith of those around them. Their family doesn't have faith. They question their faith. There's no peace anywhere. If these people are wrong in their interpretation, and again, I believe they are, their teaching does a great deal of harm to the suffering people, to the family, to other believers when they're in that, and to the unbeliever watching it all unfold. So I don't believe this is one of those name-it-and-claim-it problems. Now, some people interpret this passage by focusing on the phrase prayer of faith. And so they think that prayers that are offered for the sick are prayers of faith. And when that happens, then that sick person is well. And then they think that other prayers that are offered for sick people, well, they're not really prayers of faith, not because the person praying is a bad person or faithless, but the prayers just don't rise to that level. So it's really not the fault of the believer or a lack of faith, but because it's not God's will for this person to heal, that, that healing kind of prayer can't be reached. And you know, the truth of as many of us have known prayers like that in our life, haven't we? Things that we have prayed for, and when we prayed for them, we just knew God had answered them. Now, of course, people believe this about this passage. They don't think you have to feel it. They, they think you may not know that it's been answered, but... But that's the kind of thing they're doing. And, and, and I think there's an awful lot to, to recommend this to interpretation for us. I mean, we've all experienced things like this. You know, my, uh, my dad, when he was 16 years old, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's, which was uh, a death sentence in those days. And my Aunt Annie, when she heard the news, she went into her bedroom, she closed the door, and she spent hours in that room praying. And when she came out, she said, God's going to heal Earl. You don't have to worry about it. He has assured me that he's going to be healed. When he went back to the doctor, they could find no sign of that disease. And so we know things like that happen. And, and it doesn't do any harm. That's another good thing. And it can be a great encouragement. But I have to tell you that I think there's a better way of understanding this passage. See, we can place it in the larger biblical context, you know. There are other places in the Bible which which seem to be saying like this one, things which are which are amazing. For instance, you can have whatever you want if you ask for it in prayer and believe it. But when those things are properly understood, you see that's not quite what it's saying. It's been put into this larger context. And so those passages like this one coming it's like coming into the middle of a conversation and these statements are made and and it seems to stand the truth on its head but you take the context and, and then they begin to make perfect sense and so the Bible teaches that God answers our prayers with the or, or a yes or a no and that when he grants our requests it's because we prayed in faith and it's because we haven't cherished sin in our heart we haven't had impure or improper motives that we've actually asked God for what we want 
And when we understand it in that larger context, then James' statement settles nicely into its tone. You see, if only we obey God by putting His Word into practice when we sin. If we call the elders, if we confess our sins, if they come and they anoint us and pray for us, when those sicknesses or illness, we confess our sins, we know they're forgiven. And then God will heal that person if it's God's will. Now, you might be sitting there and objecting. You might be saying, well, why doesn't James say that? Well, the answer really is twofold. First, in communicating with people, you cannot say everything there is to say about a subject. And we've said more here about this than James has because we're trying to understand the passage. But James was simply instructing the people he was writing to what they were supposed to do when they faced a serious illness. He wasn't trying to tell them everything that they should know about prayer. He assumed they'd been part of the ongoing conversation. And today we've said many things that we assume uh, this ongoing conversation as Christians. We, we assumed a larger context, and so we briefly mentioned that, uh, that, uh, the fact of sickness, but we didn't tell you everything there was to say about sickness and why it's in our world. And we talked about anointing, and we relied on the biblical teaching of it that most of you know. We didn't say everything there was. And someone could have heard those things that we said as brief as they were and walked away with a misunderstanding. And then there are other things that, We've said, as we've talked about this issue, that we simply haven't talked about it all. We just expect you to know, to be part of that conversation. For, the, for instance, the very fact that God answers prayer and has the ability to. I haven't said a thing about that, and I expect all of you to know. The second thing is, is I think James has put it in context. You see... We anoint people in the name of the Lord. That means that we are recognizing his authority and his sovereignty. And our prayer is a prayer of faith, which necessarily means, you understand, if you're praying in faith, one of the things, whether you say it or not, one of the things that is in your heart that's part of that prayer is not my will be done, but your will be done. See, we all acknowledge that God answers our prayers as he sees fit. And that's the larger context, that it's not always God's will to heal. And so we have Paul who had a thorn in the flesh, and three times he prayed that God would take it away, and he didn't. And he left uh, Trophimus sick in Miletus, and he told Timothy to drink a little wine because of his uh, frequent illnesses, and he stopped that. You see, when we face a serious illness... God has told us how we're supposed to respond. And he will answer us when we respond that way according to his wisdom and knowledge. But let's make sure that we ask the way that he directs us to so that we don't miss the blessing that we might otherwise be sure. I have to tell you something, my friends. I think God wants us to know we have a serious illness and he deals us with us miraculously or not, he wants us to know it came from him. And if he doesn't heal us, 
He wants us to know that's His will. That we can find peace. Now there's two more things I need to do to bring this, uh, this message to a close. And the first is that there really is what I'd call an eschatological component to this prayer. That is, it, there's, a, there's an end times application to the prayer. And so we know that uh, all believers will be healed in the next life. We know that God's promises are always yes in Christ. We know for now that the creation, which includes all of us believers, are groaning and waiting for the day of redemption. We know that the day is coming when there will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more goodbyes. And there will be no more curse. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we believe all of that is coming to us who put our faith in Christ. And we know God is going to do that whether we pray for it or not. But that prayer offered in faith will bring some of that future state to us in the form of healing now in this lifetime, if that's God's will, or in the form of peace if the healing is deferred to later. In other words, this healing, this raising up may wait for the future, but we can see it now more clearly and our confidence is boosted and the peace and the assurance of eternity becomes a present reality, a present experience for us through that prayer faith. A couple weeks ago I told you, I prayed for a lot of people who were healed, but every one of them, God did something in their life, gave them peace and courage to face death, took away pain, whatever it might have been, because it was a prayer of faith. And finally, I want to read the rest of verse 16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, the church joined the elders in praying for the sick. Corporately and privately, we joined the elders throughout the course of the illness. They don't have to coordinate their prayer with the anointing. But just as the elders will continue praying for people afterwards, so the church joins with them. And we practice in a smaller way, I think, in our individual lives what we have been talking about here as we pray for those smaller things. So in my family, when my little girls were not as little as she used to be, or my boys when they were smaller, my wife even now, when they're sick, I walk over and I try to remember I put my hand on them, and I pray for them that they get better. I think, in a sense, we're practicing preventative medicine, Henry. And I want to remind you of something. That if you know Jesus Christ, and you're walking with him, you are a righteous man or a righteous your loved ones that is too good 
we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for your word. And I know, Lord, there's a lot to cover here today. Lord, I pray that we would understand just a little bit better what this is saying to us. That you would teach us to act in faith and obedience and to trust you. So it is true, my friends. It 